This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Could it be? Could it be? It is high fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check out Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app and the good folks at Red Robin. Today's guest is uh, the definition of what it means to be a baseball man, to be a baseball lifer. In fact, for more than a century, at least one Giles has been working in the world of baseball. His father, Warren, started uh, in his baseball career back in 1919. And of course, uh, after a couple of stops, Mr. Bill Giles ended up in Philadelphia back in 1970 and has really changed the way that we watch and enjoy the game of baseball here in Philadelphia. It is a real pleasure to welcome in Mr. Bill Giles to the program. Thank you for being here, sir. It's great to see you. Thank you, Murph. Happy to be here. Let's talk. I, I have a difficult question right out of the shoot for you because it is hard to define your baseball career because you have worn so many different hats over the years. So I wonder, how would you, in, in looking back at, uh, at your time starting Way back, uh, you know, growing up in Cincinnati with your father involved in baseball all the way through your time in Philadelphia. How would you describe what it was that you did uh, as a baseball man? Well, I'm a baseball lifer and my goal was always to make people happy, make them smile. Anybody that was at a ballpark, I wanted them to be happy during the game and also after the game was over so that mom and dad and the kids can say, gosh, we had a good time and not be dependent on whether the Phillies or whatever team I was working for uh, won the game. And, and I would say that uh, you did that more often than not, you know, I, there's a, there's a great picture in your book and we're going to talk about your book in just a little bit uh, that uh, there was a sign at the vet that says Bill Giles makes smiles. And uh, and so that really was the goal for you, right? I mean, even early on in your first jobs in the minor leagues, when you were kind of making your bones uh, you're doing everything that needs to be done in, in the minor leagues, but for you, it was all about, Hey, let's get people here and let's make sure that they're, they're enjoying themselves watching this baseball game yeah that was my total philosophy and the theory was that if they liked what they enjoyed at the game that they would eventually become a season ticket holder and that when you're in marketing in baseball and you're trying to sell tickets selling season tickets is the best thing you can do well, that brings me to like the first hat that you wore because early in your career uh, and, and in the minor leagues, but we'll we'll jump into where you where you got started in the major leagues, which was down in Houston. Um, you you were a guy that was in charge of marketing the brand new team down there in Houston. So promotions was a big part of what you did. And uh, it started off because you had this brand new, beautiful building that uh, at the time didn't have a name, um, but uh, it was going to be an indoor ballpark because Major League Baseball said it's way too hot down there in Texas to have a, a have a team. So you guys uh, figured out a way to build the Astrodome. And it was one of your major responsibilities to make sure that, well, that place was was rocking on, on a daily basis. Um, what do you remember about uh, those early days, even before the ballpark opened, as you guys got ready to, to get this franchise off the ground? Well, number one, uh, the grass didn't grow. We yes. <laughs> were supposed to be able to play with real grass because the roof had been made out of prisms. But 
that's a long story because the grass didn't grow and eventually <laughs> it ended up that we had astroturf and yeah. the astroturf story is an inter interesting one but it really saved the day for the astrodome otherwise it would have been a, a losing proposition of millions of dollars yeah, and, and we're going to get into that Astro uh, Turf story in a little bit. But tell me a little bit about um, you guys started in a ballpark that was kind of adjacent to the Astrodome um, as the team was was being put together. And then you moved into the Astrodome, obviously, and, and, and kicked things off. But it was important to kind of drum up the excitement before that Astrodome even opened up, was it not? So you, you guys kind of came up with a bunch of different ideas. Well, Houston had not been in the major leagues, of course until 1962 and people weren't really used to coming to the ballpark too frequently so i had to do a lot of crazy things uh at at what they called colt stadium which mm -hmm. had what 32,000 seats and they had kind of folding chairs and it wasn't a very great place to watch a baseball game but I, you know, I had some giveaways and I had usherettes and we had a lot of bands and music and we made it the best fun we could make it under the circumstances. But then when we moved in the Astrodome, the very large, expensive uh, scoreboard made it easy to promote fun things that aren't necessarily involved in the baseball game itself. Yeah, and and not only that, but it also gave you a direct opportunity to, uh, well, maybe sometimes give your opinion on what was happening down on the field, right? <laughs> you took advantage of that that big scoreboard to make your thoughts known time from time, right? Yeah, I almost got kicked out of baseball because <laughs> of the scoreboard. <laughs> Every once in a while, maybe a message to the uh, sitting commissioner or a message to the home plate umpire found its way across that board uh, out of the mind of Bill Giles, right? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But one of the great things I think that uh, that you did, and you kind of focused uh, each and every season, uh, you know, kicking it off in the right way. For you growing up in Cincinnati, opening day in Cincinnati to this day is a huge deal. And they have parades and they, they fill the ballpark. And it's it's a almost like a celebration of the sport each year in Cincinnati. But that wasn't true elsewhere in your in your career and you wanted to make sure that uh not only in houston but in philadelphia that opening day became special opening day of the astrodome you guys did do something pretty special you're 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 pretty close to the space program down there that's how the astros uh, got, got their name and uh you had uh some pretty special guests uh, game one uh, of the opening of the astrodome did you not yeah i thought it was one of the most thrilling uh opening day throughout the first ball scenes. Uh, there were 28 astronauts at the time, and I was able to get all 28 of them to come to the game. And they all stood behind our dugout. And I had 25 players from the Houston Astros, plus three coaches were standing out on the field and the astronauts had given signal uh, all through the ball to our players and it was quite a scene to see that and nobody of course will ever see that kind of an act again no but that's what started the astrodome 
And what a great way to start it when you stop to think about what that scene must have looked like. And I would imagine, you know, we were in the midst at that point of the building that's the space program. It was such a big time for NASA. And, and uh, I, I'm sure that the crowd reacted in that way. Right. A pretty uh, not only a great baseball moment, but a pretty patriotic moment as well. Oh, definitely was. And, uh, you know, the whole scene of the Astro, Astros, NASA, was only about 30 miles away from the Astrodome. So it just made sense to make the two meld together. And one other great story about the Astrodome that uh, I'd like you to talk about is um, we have heard uh, our whole lives as the Astrodome uh, was, was being utilized, you know, eighth wonder of the world. That, you know, it's something that probably most people think that was kind of commissioned the eighth wonder of the world. But in actuality, that was just you behind your typewriter, right? Yeah. I, every time, every time I see it referred to the eighth one of the world, I laugh because nobody declared it except. <laughs> that was and, good uh, enough. <laughs> and I was writing a story about come visit the eighth one of the world, and nobody ever challenged who in the hell named it the eighth. One of the world. <laughs> and the and the beauty of that. Mr. Giles is that people did come and, and, and they did like you had tours of the Astro. It became a destination for folks coming to Houston. Yeah, we, we, uh, did about 14,000 people a day, just going through the place. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was a very unique and first indoor baseball stadium ever built. So it was a big deal at the time. It still sits there and nobody knows what to do with it, but, uh, a lot of debate about whether they should tear it down. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which would be hard probably for, for, for you to see, uh, you know, every, every place has its time and place, but, uh, it was, it was a special place for you. No doubt about it. I mean, it was really where you started to, to make your bones, uh, in major league baseball and, you know, so many other great events as well, not just baseball happening inside the Astrodome. I know you were involved in promoting all kinds of different things, whether it be uh, boxing or, uh, but I, there was a huge college basketball game there. If I'm not mistaken, was that was the game between Houston and UCLA where UCLA finally blew their, their long winning streak, right? Do I have that right? Yeah, Houston had Alvin Hayes and yep. uh, and Alcindor, I guess it was, for the UCLA, and Houston beat them. And uh, 55,000 people in attendance. It's it's amazing. Fifty five thousand people. Now, it's more commonplace nowadays to see a basketball game with that many people. But back then, that was the first of its kind. Right. There were some people that thought you guys were crazy because people weren't going to be able to, to follow the action from that far away. But it seemed to work out. All right. I remember the press conference when we announced it and uh, my boss, Judge Hoffines, announced it. And there was criticism of baseball being too small to, to be seen by fifty five thousand people. So my boss held up a basketball, held up a baseball, and said, you can see it just as well. Once you decided to make the move to Philadelphia, the Carpenter family was about to open up Veterans Stadium, and they needed somebody to really help them not only launch this new building, but uh, to put some some butts in the seats and to kind of uh, reignite the interest in Phillies baseball up in Philadelphia uh, they tapped you for the job. I know that uh, you and, and your wife, Nancy, had reservations at the time about coming back to Philadelphia because 
or coming to Philadelphia because your earlier visits as a a member of the Astros organization, Philly didn't do much for you. Am I right? (laughs) You're right. You're right. But the problem was in Houston, I was becoming more of a marketing guy for the entire complex. They had hotels and exhibit halls and they were doing a lot of things other than baseball. And I really was a baseball guy in my mind. And when uh, Mr. Carpenter offered me the job back in 1969, I guess, um, it would be only baseball. And my goal was to put seats um, in the stands and also to increase television ratings. And that was all I was hired to do. But in the process of them hiring me, Mr. Carpenter in particular, he said that within five or 10 years that I'm going to retire and I want you and Paul Owens to run the ship. And that was very attractive to me. Sure. Yeah. Because ultimately your goal, your entire, you you made a goal at a very young age to, to be running a baseball team. I think by the age of 42 is the goal that you set for yourself um, to to be in charge of of a baseball uh, team. And so that, you know, focused on, on the prize, Philadelphia seemed to be a good place to head. Yep. So talk a little bit about uh, getting a chance to, to open up the vet. Now, again, we all have heard the stories of the great promotions that have gone, went, went on in the early seventies, late seventies into the eighties at, at veteran stadium. Uh, some very famous ones. Uh, you and I have talked about this before, but uh, kite man, not only once, but twice, but three times is a charm. And Hey, in baseball, that works, right? <laughs> you get three tries in baseball. Why not give kite man three tries? The first two, did not go all that well, correct? Uh, <laughs> but, correct. But in 1980, it worked out well. Um, what, do, what do you remember about that? Tell us a little bit about uh, those those three attempts. I think the first one was in 72, the second year of the vet, and then again in 73, and then in 80. Well, the first one I remember quite well because uh, <clears throat> the year that we opened the vet, I had a helicopter fly in. Uh, and dropped the first ball from about 200 feet above the field. And Mike Ryan, our backup catcher, caught the ball. And it got a lot of attention. And so I was reading Sports Illustrated about a guy that can jump off cliffs and fly. And I thought in my mind, gee, that would be great if he could bring in the first ball of the season by jumping off the roof, roof and gliding into uh, the pitching man. So I got a hold of this guy and told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, I can't do that, but if you build me a ramp <clears throat> about 30 feet long, I can water ski down the ramp and glide into the pitching mound. So I spent $5,000 building the stupid ramp <laughs> up for the seats in right field. And it was the, one of the years we had a player strike and the season was delayed a week. And this, this guy uh, called me on the phone and said, Mr. Giles, I, I, I can't come a week later. I got to go to Mexico and teach the president of Mexico how to water ski. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and the story got in the paper that the great kite man uh, couldn't make it in some guy that ran a hardware store out in Paola called me and said, I have a friend that can do that. He, he works at Cypress Gardens down in Florida. 
So I got a hold of him and I flew him up from Florida and showed him the ramp and asked him if he could water ski down the ramp. He said, I, I really don't think so, but if you get me some roller skates and pull me outside the ballpark by an automobile down the road, I can get enough air under me. I'll get up high enough and circle down into the field. <clears throat> so I called the police commissioner, Frank Rizzo, and I said, Frankie, baby, got this idea. He said, no, no, no. It'll mess up traffic. So I go back to the original Michael Johnson. And I said, Mike, do you think, uh, I'll, get, I'll give you another 500 bucks if, if you go down that ramp. And he finally said, okay. Then I said, would you mind practicing? And he said, look me right in the eye. He said, if somebody, if only you was gonna be here, I'm not gonna attempt that because I might kill myself. <laughs> I want somebody more than you watching me if I kill myself. <laughs> anyway, it proceeded to opening night. <clears throat> we had 44,000 people playing St. Louis Cardinals. And I walked into the PA booth and I said, it's time to announce the kite man. And an EPA guy goes, first time in the history of Major League Baseball, the great kite man. Well, the kite man didn't move. And so I say to the PA guy, uh, try it again. He must not have heard you. So he does the same thing and the kite man doesn't move. By now, all the fans are booing. They're really booing because the kite man <laughs> won't move. So I say to my sales guy who was with him, I said, give him a little push. So <clears throat> he starts down the ramp. The wind blows him off the ramp. He's in the seats. I think he's dead. And the fans are booing like hell. And finally, he stands up and throws the ball toward home plate. And then it dies right in the bullpen and right. <laughs> so that was the what great kite man. <laughs> well, I think it's kind of amazing that you gave, uh, well, not the same person, but you gave Kite Man two more opportunities before he finally got it right uh, back in 1980. But, you know, he was just one of the one of the great, you know, promotions that, that you guys did in Philadelphia. I'm thinking, uh, you know, about the, I, I can remember, and I don't know if I remember seeing it as a kid or if I remember seeing it in news clips afterwards, but the guy on the motorcycle going across on a wire with the woman hanging below him, um, that's one of the, but, but, but the other one that people still talk about to this day is uh, the great Willenda doing his tightrope walking across. Um, and I think that was in between a double header, if I'm not mistaken, but walking across the top of the vet, of veteran stadium, it, it, it's just remarkable that, uh, that someone would even attempt to do that. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the promotions I did that <coughs> I was scared to death that he was going to get hurt. Yeah. But he made it. He made it. Yeah. Well, at least he was a professional. That's what he did. So uh, <coughs> it's uh, it it is. It's kind of funny to watch. I, before we move on from from this, I just you mentioned the helicopter drop in 1971, and one of the you know great parts of that story is Mike Ryan catches the baseball, and the opening day is a success, and the ball's delivered and everything. But there was a rehearsal of that. Uh, event, if I'm not mistaken, where someone who worked for you and I and I'm I don't remember his name, but you had him go out 
uh, and attempt to try and catch the baseball from a helicopter to see if it could be done. Is that is right. that? And it was in the winter, if I'm not mistaken, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think it was Paul Callahan who was the yeah. guy. Yeah, and I I was afraid of the spin because uh, if you drop a ball from a helicopter, it could act like a knuckleball and it would be hard as heck to catch. So I went throwing the spin to throw one without a spin, and it did knuckle. And then he put a spin on the second one, and it went straight down. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I think, Paul Callahan did. Yeah, and I, I guess that his second attempt, he made kind of a diving, well, he said diving catch. You said he tripped and fell but was able to make the catch uh, in the snow. But uh, Callahan is also the guy that was up there with Kite Man, giving him a little nudge. Uh, yeah. in, in here, number two. Like, what was his job title? That sounds like a great gig. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was, he was head of group sales, <laughs> <laughs> but again, wearing many hats as many of the, the baseball folks do. All right. Well, before we leave, uh, the idea of marketing and promotions, there was one other idea that you came up with that, uh, to this day brings so much joy to so many people watching baseball, not only in Philadelphia, but around the country. And that is the idea of the Philly fanatic. And, and there, the Phillies had mascots at the time, Phil and Phyllis, of course. Uh, and they were part of a light show out in the outfield and they were wearing costumes and walking around. What made you decide that uh, you guys needed to go in a different direction and, and how did the Philly fanatic kind of, you know, come to fruition? Well, Dennis Lehman was my marketing director for a while <clears throat> and he traveled with the team. And about almost every other Tuesday when we had these meetings, he kept telling me that we should have a mascot because the chicken out in San Diego really made kids happy and it helped in attendance and helped in security. <clears throat> so I finally decided to proceed and told my promotion manager to get a hold of the people that made Big Bird on Sesame Street. And <clears throat> I got a hold of them and told them I wanted something that was fat, undefinable, with a big nose, <laughs> with, with the general instructions. And they came back with a drawing. I said he wasn't fat enough and his nose wasn't long enough. And finally, they got a design that I liked. And uh, so I ordered the costume. And then I said, no, who in the hell are we going to put in the costume? Right. And we had a male guy, the guy that went around the office exchanging all the letters and stuff. And Dave Raymond, who was a football player, punter at Delaware University, and found out that he was, uh, his mother was deaf and uh, had to talk with her hands. So I, and those speaking to her had to use their hands. So I thought it would be great to have Dave get in the costume because we didn't want the fanatic to talk. And he's, he's still not supposed to talk to anybody. And right. it just worked out well. Raymond did a heck of a job. And then Tom Burgoyne took over. And Tom's still doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, I think I either read about it or heard it in an interview you've done that uh, your father didn't think it was all that great of an idea uh, at the time, but uh, you stuck to your guns and said, "No, I, th I think this is this is going to work." And well, you nailed that one, right? 
Yeah, my dad did not like the Phillies. <laughs> he he didn't think mascots belonged at Major League Baseball games. Well, you know what? There's a place for sure, and the Philly fanatic has certainly proven that. Our conversation with Mr. Bill Giles will continue here on Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin. That's more coming up with Bill Giles right after this. Hey, everyone, Murph here, and the Parks Sportsbook app is the official sportsbook partner of the real Philly sports fan. Bet on it all. Baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Live in-game play-by-play betting lets you bet while you watch. No better way to bet right now than the Parks Sportsbook app. The only sportsbook app backed by the number one casino in Pennsylvania and the only one I recommend. No one does live in-game play-by-play betting better. Bet the money line as it changes during the game on the Parks Sportsbook app. Plus, bet on individual player performances. In baseball, you can bet on hits, home runs, and pitcher strikeouts every inning. How about golf? You can bet on match winners, bet on leaders after rounds, and more. New customers sign up right now and get your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use promo code ACTION. Do it now. Your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use that promo code ACTION. The website has all the details. Get game previews, podcasts, and more on Twitter at Parks Sportsbook. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer, or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade. Whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. All right, I I, want to take off your marketing and promotions hat. And I want to move on and talk a little bit about your your business acumen because so many uh, different decisions that were made throughout your career uh, have had lasting impact in the game of baseball. We mentioned AstroTurf, and I know the uh, the idea that uh, indoor baseball was new and there was you were going to try and grow grass. In fact, the original plan was to grow the grass inside uh, the AstroDome, but it, it just wasn't working. And you guys needed to quickly, you and your boss uh, needed to quickly come up with a, a new plan. And the idea was to bring this carpet company in and tell us a little bit how, about how that meeting went, because uh, it's really kind of legendary how it all played out for both sides. Well, we tried, we tried orange baseball. The problem was the outfielders <clears throat> could not see the ball, the fly balls during the daytime. So we tried orange balls and uh, that didn't work at all because the orange balls got slippery. Mm. And the only solution really was to put fake grass. And I was in the meeting and uh, Roy Hoffines, my boss said, can you guys, it was Monsanto chemical company who made grass or made plastic things and rugs and so forth. And uh, Monsanto said, sure, we can make fake grass and Hoffman said, how much is it going to cost? And they said a million dollars. And he said, that's about the same number I was going to charge you to call it AstroTurf. Because <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> if, with, with the AstroDome being such a popular 
place in the eighth wonder of the world. If you sell AstroTurf, you'll make millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's a field free, basically. And Unbelievable. Yeah. Went on from there. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal on both sides. Uh, you know, and you mentioned that uh, as the, the the group down there in Houston, as baseball continued to grow and their their business also began to grow and they started purchasing outside vent, um, ventures and they wanted to kind of expand into hotels and entertainment and amusement parks and that kind of thing. And one of those acquisitions was uh, another major uh, moment in your career when you got, a, I guess, a phone call saying, hey, we need you uh, on an airplane heading over to, to Europe because we have a big business deal going on. Um, they were attempting to buy the circus, Ringling Brothers Circus. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, how that played out for you guys. Well, that was one, the most, one of the most memorable experiences I ever had. Um, they, they said to show up at the airport and be ready to spend 10 days overseas. So my wife and I show up, we get a stack full of uh, airline tickets. And I, I still did not know where I was going. And we get halfway across the Atlantic flying to Rome and the boss meets with the six or seven of us that were there and said, we're going to buy Ringling Brothers Circus, trying to buy it. And also, he said, Madison Square Gardens is also trying to buy Ringling Brothers Circus. So we're going to check into the hotel and under assumed names. And uh, so in the middle of the night, I said to myself, you know what I really need? We need a baby lion because I was the one in charge of getting a picture and writing the story about my boss, Roy Hoffines, buying the circus from John Ringling North. So I go down to the concierge in the morning and I said, where can I rent a baby lion? And he, he didn't understand English, so I did a little charades act. And he sent me to the Rome Zoo. And I go to the zookeeper and I said, I would like to rent a lion, baby lion, baby lion. And he takes me to the great big lion. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, 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 bambino, bambino. And I'd kind of given up and I walk out of the zoo with my wife. And there was a photographer with a little baby cub lion sitting in the bench and I go up to him and I said, sir, can I uh, rent the lion (laughs) for a month? And he looks at me like I'm crazy. And eventually with help from an interpreter, I convinced him to go with us to the Rome Coliseum because I wanted the picture taken in the Rome Coliseum because that's where the first circus was held. Right. So we end up, with the lion and with Mr. Ringling North and with my boss and the lion and the photographer took, took the picture and it made the entire front, excuse me, back page of life magazine and was in almost every newspaper in the entire world. And that that was uh, one of the most unusual things I ever did. Yeah, you know, and so many parts of that story are are so great to unfold. Of course, I'm envisioning you in the back of an Italian cab heading off to the Coliseum Mm -hmm. 
with uh, right. your wife, uh, the the uh, the guy that had the lion and a baby lion. I mean, if you're the cab driver, what are you thinking at that point? <laughs> you're right. That, that is that's crazy. But uh, you were tasked with a project to get that picture seen all over the place. And that's exactly what happened. I hope you got a big raise out of that one. Actually, I did. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well deserved. Um, all right. And then perhaps maybe the, the biggest business deal of your career um, was, of course, uh, back here in Philadelphia. You had been with the team for a little bit more than a decade when the Carpenter family made kind of a surprising announcement at the time, uh, they were coming off a world championship in 1980. And I, I believe it was in 81. They decided that they were going to to sell the team. Um, and immediately you thought to yourself, wait a minute, I, maybe, maybe I can be a part of this, which is remarkable because you have said admittedly publicly many, many times, it, you didn't have much money at the time. How are you going to buy a baseball team? But you figured out a way. Yeah. Well, when I got cut from the high school baseball team when I was 15, I walked off the field and said, my goal in life is to be running a major league baseball team. And I'd always had that in the back of my mind, <clears throat> but I never thought the Phillies would be sold. So it really shocked me when Ruley Carpenter told me on the plane ride down to Clearwater mm -hmm. that they were going to sell the team. So I immediately went to work because a lawyer had told me that you don't have to have the money. You just have to have the reputation and respect the people that do have money and you can get 10% of the team. So I put down a list with help from lawyers and bankers all the 200 richest people in Philadelphia and just started to meet with them and call them and say, how about giving me $5 million to help me buy the team? <laughs> and uh, it was easy to get a million from people, but when, when we had to go to 5 million for legal reasons, uh, it was pretty hard, but I, I got, uh, I got 15 million real quick. And then all of a sudden, I got a call from Taft Broadcasting out in Cincinnati, Ohio, who knew my father. And he said, we just had a board meeting. We'll give you any amount of money you want up to 30 million bucks. So I had 30 million bucks in my pocket and uh, went out and bought, bought the Phillies. Unbelievable. It, it really is. It's the stuff that, that, you know, movies are, are made about when you stop to think about it. it. It's such an incredible story. And then, you know, fast forward 35, 40 more years of, of your involvement with the team and, and where the team grew and what it became and the world championships uh, that you were involved with the world series you were involved in. It's just, it's such an incredible story. You told me that story. You probably don't remember this, but I certainly do. Uh, we had, we were down in spring training probably in 2013. Uh, and I had never heard that story before. And we were sitting after having played golf uh, with Chris Wheeler and a couple other guys. And you told me that you told the table, that story again. And I, it has always resonated with me about just Talk, talk about having a thought in your head and having a, a goal in mind and then doing everything you can to make sure that that happens and comes to comes to life for you. It's just, it's an incredible story about uh, perseverance and going after what you want. And, and you were able to do that. And I just think it's remarkable. Thank you. All right. So let's go back a little bit though in time, because uh, you did have, you know, a lot of steps along the way to that moment. And, one of them was, uh, you know, your father obviously involved in baseball, which got you involved in baseball at a young age. And one of the jobs that you had early on 
uh, you did a little scouting, right? And and I think you you said in your book that you learned pretty quickly that maybe scouting wasn't for you because you saw a young third baseman. Um, do you remember this story? You saw a young third baseman that you were asked to scout a little bit, and you said didn't think he was going to be able to cut it in the big leagues because of, because of his glove. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I I, I remember that story. I went and scouted a couple of players over in San Antonio, Texas. And I sent a report into Cincinnati at the time. <clears throat> I do not remember the names of the players, but I said neither one of them could play in the big leagues. And one of them became a star. I can't yeah. remember who it was. It was Brooks Robinson. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was it was <laughs> Brooks Robinson. And you said in your report. That, that you thought maybe he could hit at the big league level, but he wasn't going to be able to field his position. Um, yeah, it turned out he was the greatest of all time. <laughs> but, you know, hey, you know, we're quibbling over minor details at this point. <laughs> That's It's great. But but another guy that you uh, later in your career had a big hand in recruiting was a guy named Pete Rose. And, and you know, what he did to change the fortunes of baseball in Philadelphia is, is well documented. But uh, you came up with uh, a way to get Pete to Philadelphia because there, there were other teams in 1978, 79 that were vying for his services, obviously. And uh, you guys came up with a pretty creative solution here in Philadelphia to get him to town. Yeah, uh, really, Carpenter was uh, ready to give Pete 600000 a year because he was making 400000 with Cincinnati. And we flew Pete and his agent, Reuben Katz, up to Philadelphia and had a secret meeting and so forth. And uh, they wanted to show us a film. And we said, we don't want to see a film. We, we know everything about Pete Rose. And uh, Mr. Carpenter said, how much is it going to take for us to get him? And the agent, Reuben Katz, said, seven figures and really started counting on his fingers and said, my God, that's a million dollars a year. And Mr. Katz says, that's right. Well, let's have lunch, Mr. Carpenter said. We can't, we can't do that. So we announced basically that we were not gonna sign Pete Rose. <clears throat> but on the way to the airport, uh, his agent, who was a good friend of mine, whispered to me and said, if you can get really up to 800 grand, I think I can talk Pete into signing with Philadelphia. And I showed Pete all the records of the National League. And he was third in his, third in his, third in almost all the record right. records there were. And I said, Pete, you don't want your children to think you were third. <laughs> you want you, you want to be number one in all those categories. And you can do that if you stay in the National League because we found out that Kansas City was the team that had offered him a million a year. So eventually, <coughs> he said, well, if you can get eight, 800,000, we'll sign with you. And really said, I, I can't do more than 600. And uh, so I said, I got an idea. I'll go to our TV station and see if they can put up some of the money. So I went to Channel 17 at the time and told them what I was thinking. And they said, if you increase your payment to us from 600 to 800,000, we will turn around and give the 800,000 to Pete Rose 
and you'll get better television ratings. Wow. And sure enough, it worked, and we got Pete Rose, and we won the first and only World Series for Philadelphia uh, the next year, 19. It's again a remarkable story. I, I might need you as my agent, Mr. Jolly. You know, <laughs> I might have to bring you on board. <laughs> Always figuring things out. I like that. Uh, all right. Well, I know we only have a couple more minutes with you, so I I, I want to run through uh, uh, one other hat. We're taking off your baseball hat now. We're putting on your uh, human resources hat because you also had a very uh, a good knack for finding great talent, and I don't mean talent just talent in terms of uh, folks that you see on TV or you hear their voices or whatever, but also uh, front office talent. And, and there's a couple of names that, uh, that you were directly involved with uh, helping, uh, you know, bring to the American public. And the first is probably one in Philadelphia that most people don't know your PA announcer in Houston was uh, well, be, went on to become a pretty well-known uh, news personality. Uh, and that was Dan rather you found Dan rather and kind of brought him in as your PA guy, right? Paid him 13 bucks again. again. <laughs> Lucrative. <laughs> that, yeah, that's really, what made you, what what drew you to a guy like Dan Rather? I know he was like a local uh, news anchor at he, the time. He was a second string uh, news guy at the CBS station in Houston. And he, he made his hay when uh, he reported on Hurricane Carla mm. back in the 60s or 70s. I forget what it was. And uh, yeah, I did hire Dan Rather. Dan Rather. And then another course, Dan, that you hired is the great Dan Baker here in Philadelphia. Uh, the story about Kite Man that you told earlier, he was the PA voice that was encouraging Kite Man, if I'm not mistaken, right, to, to take that uh, initial plunge. But, uh, you know, you must be awful proud to, to see what, what Dan has accomplished here in Philadelphia uh, so many years later and uh, knowing how beloved he is in this town. Well, Dan's a wonderful man. I just saw him the other day, and yeah. he's he and his wife Kathy are part of the fabric of the Philadelphia Phillies, in my opinion. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, and he is. He's he's all of that. And then, of course, uh, the, the great Harry Callis. You had a, you had you brought him to Philadelphia. You had a part of bringing him uh, into Houston originally, and you guys became friends down in Houston. And when when uh, I guess it was Bill Campbell uh, and the Phillies parted ways, the Phillies needed a voice. And and you said, I got this guy down in Houston, right? Yeah. Harry Callis and I became very good friends in Houston. And uh, <clears throat> when we, when we lost Bill Campbell, I immediately hired Harry. And I tell you, Ashburn and Callis together, doing television for the Phillies was the best show I think I've ever seen on TV. I think uh, almost everybody uh, growing up, I certainly myself uh, would agree with that statement. I mean, they were, they, they were so beloved and, and are still our, our beloved in this town, but uh, the chemistry that the two of them had is such a rare, rare find in broadcasting. Uh, I mean, it was, a, there's no way you could have predicted that they'd have that kind of chemistry but I would imagine you saw that pretty early on. Well, I just knew they were both uh, good people and I knew that they were funny people. Yeah. And I thought that their sense of humor mixing together would turn out to be very likable by the audience. Well, you nailed that one for sure. 
Uh, and, and finally, one other guy that uh, that uh, you also brought into the Phillies family uh, was just honored down at the ballpark as we sit here and tape this podcast today, uh, just a few days ago, uh, David Montgomery, of course. Uh, and we all are familiar with David's story and what he was able to bring to the Phillies organization. But uh, you met him as a very young man, just finishing up uh, his uh, his um, education at Wharton. And you met him in a unique situation and you said, I'm going to give this guy a chance, right? Yeah. He, he was at a function at Jessup Hill Academy and, and I was there too with Robin Roberts and Robin Roberts says, I got a young man just graduated from Wharton who wants to get into baseball. <clears throat> and I said, uh, let me meet him. So <laughs> Dave was in his undies and, uh, <laughs> And I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he did. And I said, show up Monday at uh, 9 a.m. And I'll put you to work and see what you can do. Yeah. Any man that can nail the interview in his undies is is a guy <laughs> that you want on your squad, right? That's right. <laughs> it's really that simple. We should all do interviews that way. And and, and you'd know right away whether or not the, they have what it takes. Uh, you know, it, it and there's so many more, you know, you met, we mentioned Dave Raymond. There's so many other people who uh, crossed paths with you, Mr. Giles, and then went on to, to be, you know, great Philadelphians, great Philadelphia uh, baseball people. And, uh, you know, there's just way too many to mention in a short period of time. And that's the truth. Um, one, one final question. I, I want to ask you if if you can if you think back to um, the childhood that you had. You lost your mother at a very early age, seven years old, and your father at the time was with the was he with the Cardinals or with, he was with the the Reds at the time? Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, he was with the Reds at the time, and uh, so your childhood was was very much in and around ball players, the ballpark, all of that. And I would imagine, as as we all are, kind of shaped at that time of our lives, um, it was almost a predestination that uh, that baseball was going to be such a, a big part of your life, right? Yeah, I literally was raised in a baseball park because uh, my dad always was down there at the games, and he would take me with him most of the time. So, and I hung out, ran around the clubhouse, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so that's how baseball became my life. Yeah. And uh, and what a life it was. I, I want to mention again, uh, Pouring Six Beers at a Time is your book, uh, it's, which is such a clever title. And I know that was a big part of uh, what you were trying when you were writing the book. You wanted to come up with a clever title. I was going to ask you to demonstrate that, but I'm sure you don't have six beers handy. But but you do talk about in the book how you were able to do that as a young man in the minor leagues and uh, pouring six beers at a time. That's a thing, right? You can do that. If you, if you don't have arthritis, <laughs> put six bottles of beer out in front of you. Yeah. Put it, put them between your fingers and then dump them over into the cup, which is on the table in front of you. You can do it. Yeah. Well, I may have tried it a time it. or two. <laughs> Well, uh, it's just uh, it's just one other great anecdote in in a, a baseball life that we've talked about. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, spending a couple of minutes with us, spending more than a couple of minutes with us uh, as we sit here and and think back to your life and your legacy of of what you were able to do. And and I started the program by saying that you changed the way Philadelphians watch and enjoy the game of baseball. And I think that is a such an accurate statement. And forever 
uh, we, that that will be the case because uh, we just view it differently now, thanks to uh, all of uh, the fingerprints that you put on the Phillies organization. Thank you very much, Murph. Mr. Bill Giles joining us today, and always good to see him. And uh, we'll be back with more right after this. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer, or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout 